John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me, for whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you, be- you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now you'll notice that verses 44 and 46, I didn't put those in and, and I'll address that why later in the message. But the title today, like I said, is Representing Christ. And if we read this passage rightly, and I think we do, what Christ is saying is how you represent him now matters for all eternity. In fact, that's the one thing I hope you understand, you take away from the message today. How we represent Christ now matters for eternity now the word represent if you were to look it up it means to be entitled or appointed to act or speak for someone especially in an official capacity in other words when you represent someone you are their voice in the room you are speaking on their behalf when paul writes to the corinthian church in second corinthians 5 he says therefore we are ambassadors for christ Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, when you study that and you read that in the context, you understand Paul is specifically talking about the apostles himself and the other 11 apostles. He's not referring to the church. He's in the process of planting the church, of laying the foundation for the church. In fact, if we understand Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 rightly, He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. How many of you know we don't need another cornerstone? We have Christ. Amen? So that means that we as the church today, we are building upon the foundations which were laid by the apostles and the prophets. They gave us Scripture. And we're building upon the foundation they laid. We, in a sense, are stewards of the church they, in Christ, planted. In that case, then, as they were representatives of Christ then, we, therefore, are representatives of Christ now. We are the body of Christ. And I want, to, I want to stipulate, I want to, not stipulate, that's the wrong word. I want to specify the local church is a representative of Christ. 
The local church is so vital to the body of Christ, but often it's neglected, it's overlooked, it's completely forgotten. I heard a pastor recently uh, compare the local church to a housewife and those big shiny mega churches to supermodels and actresses, Hollywood starlets. He said, the housewife is real with faults and defects exposed, but the actress is made up and decorated. The housewife is the stuff of everyday life, but the actress is seen only in the most attractive role or the most spectacular moments. How many of you know some of those bigger churches, they edit what you see? They have multi-million dollar cameras and sound and light shows, and, and the pastors have special groomers who help them look nice before they come on the stage. They do. By the way, I don't. All right? Clearly, right? He goes on. He says, similarly, the local church is something that is real, exposed and undecorated, a congregation of redeemed people caught in time between the already and the not yet, new creations that are not quite fully new, pilgrims on the way to Zion, but still marred by the soil of Babylon. God's plan is, has been, and will be for the foreseeable future, the local church. That's how he gets his message out there. But the problem is, whenever it's a smaller church, a local church, we know those people, don't we? We are those people. And if a local church loses a family, that's a big deal. If a mega church loses a family, they don't even notice. Why? Because they're the Hollywood starlet. The same way they don't pay attention to everybody's tweets, but if your friend posts something on Facebook who goes to church with you and you don't like it, that's a little more offensive, doesn't it? It strikes a nerve. The same way. So how we, as the local church, and as Christians in our own lives, how we represent Christ matters. It matters here. It matters now. It matters throughout eternity. But our text seems to indicate that there are those who represent Christ who, they're not really one of us, right? This is what the Apostle John said. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. When this happened, we're not told. Where this happened, we are not told. Who this other exorcist is, we're not told. There's nothing in scripture that backs up or gives us any other information than what John himself just told Jesus. This could have happened on their, on their way back from Caesarea Philippi. This could have happened one day when they were in Bethsaida and Jesus sent them into town to get uh, supplies. This could have happened when they were going through the Decapolis. This could have happened as they were going near Jerusalem. We know nothing else than what John has just said. We know John must have been the one to see it. This is the only time, by the way, in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where John and Jesus have a one-on-one discussion. So we know John was probably the one who saw this, and we know John was definitely the one who brought it to Jesus. Matthew does not even mention this back and forth between the two, and Luke takes it and condenses it, and he tweaks it in the story just a little bit. You see, in Mark's account, he has John called Jesus teacher. We've talked about that Greek word, didaskale. It's an, it's an instructor. But in Luke's account, he has John called Jesus master. The word epistata. I bring that up because Luke is the only one who ever uses that word for Jesus. Remember, Mark's two purposes for his gospel is to show Jesus as a preacher, as a teacher, and as one who is destroying the works of the enemy. 
Luke, in his gospel, wants you to understand this is not just some prophet. This is the Son of Man. Daniel 7 talks about this is the Son of God. This is God incarnate. That's why Luke makes such a big point to use epistata so much. He is the master. He's not just their master. So there's a slight difference in this take. Luke is going to summarize our next two verses as well. He doesn't cover anything else we're going to read in chapter 9, where Matthew picks up after this dialogue. Regardless, John brings this guy up. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, we saw this guy. He was casting out demons. It's the Greek word expalo. It means he's expelling them. He's driving the demons out. And he's doing it, of all things, he's doing it in Jesus' name. Now, knowing what we know, that it wasn't that long ago that John... James and Peter went up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and they come down and there's a crowd and the other disciples, the other nine guys are arguing with this with the scribes and this guy comes forward. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. We know about that. That was a sermon a couple of weeks ago. You think it bothered John that and the other disciples that this man was doing this in Jesus' name, or maybe, just possibly, it bothered John that he was good at it. He was successful. You think Jesus was supposed to get upset in John's mind? He's using my name? What? You think he's going to go up to him and be all Will Smith and pop him in the side of the head and keep my name out your mouth? You think that's what John wants? That's what John's expecting? No, I don't think so. Notice something here. John does not deny that this man is a follower of Jesus. What bothers him the most, he wasn't following us. Jesus, this guy isn't one of the 12. He's definitely not one of the three who got to go up the mountain with you. He's not in our clique. He doesn't know all our inside jokes, Jesus. Who does he think he is? How can he do this stuff? Now, you should know something about this in in historical context here, that there were different schools that would open up. Some would call them a sect, or in our current situation, denomination, possibly. They would rise up and they would compete against one another. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us there, there were so many divisions, sometimes they would argue and split over which day to have the Passover feast. Kind of like Adam and Eve. Did they have belly buttons? Did they not have belly buttons? Well, let's start our own denomination and get at it, right? They're called navalists. That's not a real thing. That's an old joke. But but their zeal is misplaced. In fact, whether John realizes it or not, whether he realizes it or not, he is echoing an Old Testament character. He's echoing a man from the Old Testament uh, named Joshua. You see, there were these leaders in Israel who were called to go to Moses. They were separated from everyone else to go be near the prophet. And the Spirit of God comes down on these men. But two of them stayed behind in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, assisted to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But what was Moses' response? Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? The implication is, No, he's upset they're not with them. If only, Moses goes on, 
If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Uh, If you don't know, that's Acts chapter 2. He has. Moses is prophesying now. So we're left to ask here in our text, on whose account was John really mad? On whose account was John really upset? Maybe he wasn't even mad. Maybe he was just flustered, right? Let's give him some credit. But we know this man was successful. He was actually driving out the demons. The disciples knew this should not upset them. People were being set free. They should rejoice. I want to point out right now, Jesus does not rebuke John for being suspicious. Note that. He doesn't condemn John for asking this question or investigating this man. In fact, Jesus isn't going to rebuke John at all. It's a teachable moment. We know the man's successful. People are being set free. The disciples should rejoice in that. If nothing else, and glory was being given to Jesus. What likely upset them, what was grinding John's gears that day, was the fact that this man was a true believer in Jesus, but was not openly and officially following Jesus in the same way they were. We can understand this, right? They've abandoned their families. They've sacrificed. They've left their jobs. They've left their work, their families, their livelihoods, just to follow Jesus around the country. I can tell you, as someone, I can relate to this because I gave up everything. I moved halfway across the country to go to Bible college. And whenever I go home and there's a guy who just got his degree through the mail, it's kind of like, okay, let's talk. Tell me what I did wrong. You know, I get that. That's an arrogance thing that I get. I admit that. John himself is one of the 12. He's one of the inner circle. He's one of the most privileged disciples. They've all specifically been commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And John, by the way, John, of all the disciples to bring this to Jesus, John is the son of Zebedee. And if we understand the context, the scripture around who Zebedee is, he's a man of wealth. He's a man of influence. And if James wanted to go off and play disciple and leave everything, John could have stayed home and inherited all that. He could have had his his father's wealth, his father's influence. It would have all fallen to John, but John gave it up too. So we come back to this other guy. Who does he think he really is? What gives him the right? We don't even, even to this day, we don't know his name. We would think, otherwise, he must be pretty insignificant, right? Compared to those 12 men, wrong. Not insignificant. Jesus says, verse 39, don't stop him because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Don't stop him. The Greek word is koliete. It means don't hinder him, don't prevent him. Don't slow him down. Why? Because he's doing signs and wonders? No. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon after, afterward speak evil of me. If this man is truly doing this in Jesus' name, and we know that means he's not using Jesus' name like some magic phrase or a spell or some incantation. He's not out there just throwing words around because the demons are leaving. We know from Acts 19, if you go into a fight with a demon and you just say, well, Jesus' name, and that you don't know Jesus yourself, you're getting your, your hiney whooped down the street, right? 
If only just that. This man is a believer. This man believes in the authority of Jesus' name. That's why he can say this, and that's why the demons run. He's using Jesus' authority. He's at least open to Jesus' ministry. So he's not going to go and do something to mar the name of Christ or hinder the ministry of Christ. If he's a true believer, he's not going to go say evil things about Jesus soon after this. Matthew 7.16 records Jesus saying, You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So you'll recognize them by their fruit. What's the fruit we recognize them by? Miracles? No. Miracles can be faked. The crowds they draw, the signs and wonders. The Antichrist will have that stuff. We don't judge people by that. We don't know them by that fruit. What do they say about Jesus afterwards? That's what we test. That's what we look at. What do they teach about him? What are they saying about him? Are they teaching modalism, Arianism, partialism? Are they preaching the whole Trinity? God is one in three distinct persons. Are they teaching some social agenda or are they giving the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's being spoken of Jesus afterward? After the crowds go home and the the lights are turned down, who gets the glory? Who is worshipped because of their ministry? Is it the Christ of Scripture or is it one of their own making? That becomes clear in the next words Jesus says, and this verse has been twisted, this verse has been contorted, this verse has been bent and misused and misapplied. For whoever is not against us is for us, he said. The message of Christ is a message with one directive, to bring the gospel of God to all who will hear it. That Christ died to save sinners, that he is an atonement for our sins, that he was resurrected, that he was God incarnate and he died for all of us, that he, as after his resurrection, ascended to the Father. When someone comes along, and you've heard me say this, John 1.1, if they push back against that, they lower who Christ is, or they add some special regulation to the message, there is a problem. Jesus preached in Mark 115, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We believe that good news, don't we? If we're Christians, we say yes. We say amen. Thank you. <laughs> I want to back up just a second. Jesus said, there, there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon after speak evil of me. That is a huge stipulation that we must watch for. Because who is in the group as Jesus says this? The crowd Jesus is addressing is the 12 disciples. Who is the one disciple you got to watch out for? That Judas guy, right? He does not say, he says soon after, he does not say, anyone who performs a miracle in my name will never speak evil about me. In fact, That word soon after is the Greek word takis. It means quickly. In other words, they're not going to perform a miracle in Christ's authority and then go tarnish Christ's name in the next breath very soon after doing that. Church, I've read books. I've read articles. I've watched documentaries about plenty of men and women who have big ministries, who have big brands, if we're being honest, in Christianity. Many were not always what they've become. 
Some started out with very successful ministries. In fact, I know of one who preached at my Bible college in the early 80s, and the Holy Spirit moved in power. But since then, he's become a charlatan. Many have started out in the assemblies, and at some point, at some point, they started to like money. They started to like the pleasures life offered them, or or just the, the wealth in general. In fact, I heard a Dave Wilkerson quote. I couldn't find it for this sermon, but I remember him saying, after he wrote the cross and the switchblade, they flew him all over the country, and he was offered every pleasure the flesh could ever want by Christians and Christian media. He said he had to go home, and I think he said it was for three months. He just stayed out of ministry entirely. He almost lost his marriage over it. You don't hear about that from Dave Wilkerson? No way. Yeah. Another, another evangelist once said, I've never seen anything change a man of God faster than a television camera. The irony of that was Ravi Zacharias is the one who said it, if you know anything about the scandal that rocked his ministry. At some point, they start to like the world and all that it offers more than they love Jesus. Demas was such a fellow. Demas is commended in some of the epistles before Paul ultimately writes in his last epistle, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. There were some in Paul's ministry who were legalistic about certain Jewish customs. The Judaizers, we call them. There are those today who believe you have to have a King James Bible or you're not saved. Right? That's kind of legalistic. They go to extreme lengths to try and prove their point. There are those who say if you don't have signs and wonders in your ministry, you're not really a minister. You're probably not even saved. That's not in Scripture. There are those who think Jesus was all about equality and diversity, and if that's not part of your ministry, you don't love like Jesus loved. There are those who think and they teach that if you don't fly a big rainbow flag in front of the building and and the pastor preaches from the Koran some Sundays, that he's judgmental and unloving. Church, that is not the gospel. That is against us, not for us. Why it's so important that we know the Word of God, that we study the Word of God. We have so many voices so many opinions trying to tell us and change our hearts and change our minds to what they believe the Bible should say versus what it actually does say. And there are fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people every year who will teach what the Bible actually does say. In another way, at a different time, Jesus said, anyone who is not with me is against me and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there is no neutral ground with Jesus. We must choose a side. Everyone must choose a side. There is no sitting on the fence with Christ. Now, logically speaking, you probably know this. I'm sure you do. Jesus knew this. Just because you aren't necessarily for something doesn't necessarily mean you're against it, typically. Right? Some people just don't care. They have, they're an agnostic, possibly, or they just have no proverbial dog in the fight. Right? but Jesus is leaving no room for that. You're either for him, or if you try to remain neutral, you are choosing a side, and that is in opposition to him. If you're not opposed to him, then you must be for him, supporting him, choosing him, submitting to him, as that unnamed exorcist had, submitting to the will of Christ. Unfortunately, there are some who represent Christ better, and there are those who represent Christ worse. We read in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. 
So Jesus is making it very clear. There are going to be those who aren't necessarily part of your group who are still your brother or sister in Christ. They're going to be on your side. They're going to bless you. They're going to serve you. They're going to want to work alongside you. And they're going to do this in his name, in his will, because you are their brother or sister in Christ. In fact, Jesus makes it clear once again that those who are in Christ are people of action. They're people of kindness. They're people of of love, and they're people of hospitality. James writes, those of us in Christ are not just uh, hearers of the word only, but we're doers of the word. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. Anyone who blesses those who are in Christ for the mere reason they are in Christ Jesus says they will not lose, he will not lose his reward. The qualifying portion of that statement is because you belong to Christ. Giving a cup of water to someone on a hot day, that's a very kind thing. That's a good thing. But church, hear me on this. When someone gives you a cup of water in Jesus' name, and you're representing the body of Christ, and they're doing it because they're also in Christ, representing the body of Christ, It goes beyond a good thing and a kind thing, and it becomes an anointed thing. It becomes a blessed thing. He says, your reward will never be lost. Giving a cup of water, by the way, we understand that's the least a person could do. That's the smallest thing a person could do. Remember, in this day and age, and even in this location, to show the smallest amount of hospitality or love or kindness or support to someone who traveled with Christ, someone especially later as they would begin to call themselves Christians and, and go all over the world, this would single those supporters out. Especially later in around 60 AD when Nero's in charge of Rome and you go and you want to show kindness to a Christian, that's a big no-no. That's a big spit in the face of the emperor type of thing. You're going to suffer with those people. You're going to die with those people. In some countries, even today, to help a Christian is the equivalent to treason. The person who only gives a cup of water won't lose their reward. Even if they aren't directly preaching the gospel themselves, they are helping the advance. Later in Mark, we're going to see again a, a reward promised, a heavenly reward. Jesus makes it clear it's a heavenly reward. When Peter reminds Jesus of the all the disciples have sacrificed. All the disciples have given up. Jesus will say that whoever is sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, there is no one who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. So the action they're doing by helping Christians may cost them something. May cost them something this side of the grave, but there's a hope and there's a reward on the other side of the grave. One commentator said, so an activity which is understood as showing basic courtesy when done in the name of Jesus resounds in great reward. This is a lesson for the disciples who are tempted to think that only they will be rewarded because of their special status as the chosen 12. But there's a flip side to this. Jesus is going to turn this around as well. He says in verse 42, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Remember last week, Jesus had a toddler standing in the middle of the room. 
He's referring to those who would welcome little children in his name. You remember that? Well, here he's referring to those who offer water to his disciples or try to support the church by loving and supporting Christians. Now, if someone causes one of those little ones, one of his children, to fall away because they are in him, he says they are in him. If they are in him and someone causes them to fall away, it would be better for that person if a millstone, he says a heavy millstone, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That heavy millstone or large millstone, some translations say, it's a type of millstone that was driven by a donkey. In fact, the Greek is milos onikos. They called it literally, it's translated the donkey stone. And the idea we're to get from this, it's meant to drive fear into our hearts. It's meant to scare us because this is a millstone that is grotesquely large. It's huge. It's meant to be memorable for the disciples. This image is to be burned into their brains. You see why I said last week, when I preach, we preach with fear and trembling. There's a responsibility that comes with that. You see why a pastor should commit to study and further education, continuing to to grow and learn. You see why I, personally, as your pastor, why I fight so hard for the truth of Scripture. Because you might be sold a bill of lies through TV or YouTube. As much as the the false teachers and false preachers try to sway people away from the truth as your pastor, it's my position, it's my calling to keep you on track. That's my task. Sometimes, sometime in the future, excuse me, sometime in the future, I want to try and have a series on the leadership of the church, what it means to be a deacon member, a, a board member what it means, all that entails being the pastor, what it means to be a teacher within the church. I would ask you to pray with me over that, to pray about when that will take place. Again, it's not just the pastor who leads the church, the deacons, the teachers, even the nursery workers, though who the, those who the, the writer of Hebrews put it, those who keep watch over your souls. In fact, when you read it, the full verse there, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Why? Why give an account? Because there's a millstone waiting for those who do it wrong. So that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Someone who's called and tasked with keeping watch over your soul. I can't speak for you, but I know if someone was tasked with keeping watch over my eternity, I would want that person to stay vigilant. I would want that person to be passionate. Someone once said, this is about me, they said, I don't like, I don't disagree with what he said, I just don't like that he said it. Jeff can be a a pit bull, he can be a, a bull in a china shop. I'll tell you what, if it were the thick of the fight, that's the type of guy you want. At least I would want that. Someone who's going to sound the alarm when there's danger near the camp or in it. You see, there's a weight to leadership, and some people don't understand that. But James says it very clearly. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. Yes, there's grace, but there are those who would preach, and Paul dealt with this, and Peter dealt with this, and James, and John, and Jude. There are those who will mislead for profit, for gain, for self-gratification. That's what differentiates the Tituses and the Timothys from the Demas, 
from Simon the sorcerer, the Judaizers, the Gnostics, the Nicolaitans, the super apostles. That list goes on and on and on. And the fact is, we don't talk about it enough. There are more of them than there are of us. Wolves run in packs, but one man or one woman is typically charged with keeping watch over the flock. That's why the writer of Hebrews continues. He says, pray for us. For we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. But church, I can tell you, and and if you're not considering, I really would ask you to consider taking the preaching class, because if you don't understand this, there is a great temptation. Pastor Calvin can tell you, there is a great temptation in sermon preparation or on a Sunday morning to stand in this pulpit and preach so you like me. So you go home and you tell your friends, Pastor Jeff really knocked it out of the park today. Man, he was so funny. Gosh, I love making people laugh. There's a temptation to preach to please people, to draw a crowd, to preach to be liked. But true ministry is lonely work. You know how nice it would be to take this passage and preach the message, God just wants us all to get along. You could, you could twist the scripture to do that. And the temptation's there. Church, I want to be very honest with you. I had this discussion already today. I'm going to be very honest with you and very raw for a moment. There is nothing in the universe that scares me. And you know my background. You know. Some of you know. I've faced down gang members. I've, I've been in very dangerous places in my life. I'm not some soldier who's been to Afghanistan, but I can tell you I've, I've witnessed the face of evil in my life, and there is not a thing on this earth that scares me more than that millstone scares me. That's what makes me lose sleep at night. As your pastor, it is my job and it is my calling to fight for you. As your pastor and the pastor of this community, I would go to war for you. So yeah, I'll deal with the theological debates and the conflicts. That comes with the office of shepherd. I don't love that aspect of it. I don't like that aspect of it. And I certainly do not enjoy the conflict. Found out that my old RA from college listens to our podcast every week and he sends me texts. Last week it was, why did your voice crack? But he would tell you that, yeah, back in college, I liked conflict. I liked to jump into the theological debates and really get into stuff. Not anymore. I hate it. Conflict gives me anxiety. I get nervous. Because the truth is, if I get it wrong, even then, there is a millstone with my name on it. And it may not be big enough to scare you, but it terrifies me. So to the best of my ability, as long as I stand in the office of your pastor, I will never purposefully lead you away. And my job is to protect you as best I can. And for those of you who are sitting there thinking, or those watching online saying, well, I can protect myself. Well, then I would ask you, Why did Jesus call his church sheep and then install shepherds to watch over them? Because you need protecting. So I'll ask you one more time, pray for your pastor. But we'll move on because I'm I'm tired of crying. What keeps you from Christ must be removed. He goes on, he says, if you're, and I'm going to fly through for the slides, I'm going to kind of fly through these next few verses. If your hand causes you to fall, off, fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. If your hand, in other words, the things that you do, if the things you do cause you to stumble, 
to fall away, it's better to cut it off. And if your foot causes you, this is verse 45, if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. So your foot would be with the places you go. If the places you go cause you to fall away, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. If your eye, if the things you look at cause you to fall away, get rid of it, gouge it out. All three of these things, they all go together. In fact, you'll notice there's there's no verse 44. Like I said, there's no verse 46 because the judgment that's mentioned in those passages is repeated again in verse 48. So yes, I believe they were probably part of the original text, but we're gonna address all of it when we get to verse 48. So just keep that in mind. The idea behind these three things is that is that to be absent a, a, a physical function, a physical bodily function in this life is better than to go to hell and have all those physical functions. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. And for those of you who don't know, Gehenna was once a dump. In the, in the time of Jesus, it was a giant literal dumpster fire that would burn continually. It was where they burned their trash. Today, it's called the Valley of Hinnom. But that wasn't its original purpose. Originally, it was used, it was a place used for child sacrifice to gods like Molech and Tanit, worshipers of Baal in the time of Jeremiah. God said, Because they have abandoned me and made this for a foreign place, they burned incense in it to other gods that they, their ancestors, and the kings of Judah have never known. They've filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They've built high places to Baal in which to burn their children in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, something I have never commanded or mentioned. I never entertained the thought. Therefore, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when this place will no longer be called Topheth and Ben-Hanam Valley, but Slaughter Valley. And by the time we get to Jesus, that's what's happening. Today, it's actually a beautiful amphitheater. They've really cleaned it up. Um, But in Jesus's time, it was a place where people burn their trash continually. Throughout other Jewish literature, extra biblical things, but from that day, they would talk about it as an as a allegory for the ultimate suffering in the afterlife. But to be clear, Jesus is not saying when you die, you go to the dump. Okay, he's not saying that you go to the trash. He's using the most literal illustration possible for the filthiness, the misery, and the suffering that would be in the afterlife for those who do not submit to his, life, his, his will. In fact, he goes on, he says, and this is verse 48, and it would have been verse 44 and 46, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is taking the words of Isaiah here, and he's, he's using that. That passage speaks to the dead bodies of God's enemies, those who are opposed to him. And it goes back to the idea, you do choose a side. Those who are opposed are left on the battlefield smoldering and decomposing. This is what Isaiah says exactly. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me, for their worm will not die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. Very similar imagery for those of you who are fascinated by end times literature, if you took the Revelation class last year, this is very similar imagery to the the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, where Jesus shows up. And if you've studied that, if you understand it, it's not much of a battle, it's a massacre. The feast for crows and vultures 
Because John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses, of the riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. This is heavy stuff. This is very deep stuff. This is the judgment of God upon the unrighteous. This is what waits for those who completely reject Christ as well as those who don't choose Christ. And they have no desire to serve Christ. We don't talk about it sometimes, and for good reason, because a relationship that's built on fear is usually a relationship that doesn't last. But it's one of those things at some point we must talk about, we have to address. People don't like hearing about it, but it doesn't make it less needed. What's being described is the death, decay, and punishment of the eternal fire. The opposite, though, that's the hope for the Christian. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. And we'd say, yes, thank you, Jesus. I look forward to that, right? But catch this. In verse 42, he addresses people who cause other people to stumble. But in verses 43 through 48, the person themselves is also responsible. Responsible for, them, for watching over themselves. What they see, what they do, where they go. What causes them to sin. The Greek word used there is scandalizo. It means to stumble or fall away. What Mark is telling us and what the disciples must watch for in themselves is not just causing others to stumble, but causing themselves to stumble. It goes back to the idea I said before. Those who are given the ability to preach and teach, watch out that you don't stumble yourself. Jesus has used very bold language, by the way. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your foot. It's all meant to be figurative, by the way. Please do not go home and grab a hacksaw and say, well, Pastor Jeff said, no, 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 no. Figurative, no amount of self-mutilation can ever deal with sin. Sin is a heart issue. Jesus is saying you must do whatever you can, whatever is necessary to deal with it, that you may have life, not just life on earth, but life eternal in the presence of the Father with him in glory. Then Jesus says this thing. He says this verse, and it's just, it seems like it's out of context. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone? Yeah, everyone will be salted with fire. What? What's that have to do with me cutting off a foot? Well, the salt in this era was used in sacrifices. To be salted with fire probably indicates that everyone believer and unbeliever, are going to face trials alike. They're going to face hard times. They're going to have, everyone has their own problems, their own suffering. It's also believed that Jesus is alluding to Leviticus 2 when it says of a sacrifice, you're to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. We, we circle back to the idea of it's a sacrifice. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is a life of sacrifice, is it not? We see it crop up again in Ezekiel 43, 24. You are to present them before the Lord. The priest will throw salt on them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. We know, Christians, that fire only makes us stronger, right? It builds us up. It purifies us. That's what Peter tells us. You rejoice in this, 1 Peter 6 and 7, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, 
So the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what that really means? Being a Christian's hard, man. It's tough. It's not easy to serve Christ. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go through it. Jesus is not Oprah. It's not, you get eternity, you get eternity, you get eternity. Check under your seat. You get eternity. It's not, no, that's not, not in his presence. We all get eternity, but not in his presence. The life of a Christian is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. That is not for the faint of heart. Christian needs to abandon this idea of self-empowerment and grab a hold of spirit empowerment, scripture empowerment, because you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It is God's gift. And it's a gift you must receive and live with and live in and grow and nurture to maturity for the rest of your life on earth. Jesus concludes the whole chapter. He says, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. If salt is associated with sacrifice and everyone's going to be salted with fire, and then these words specifically are clearly for the church, for Christians, for those who follow Christ, what does that mean? It means it's a challenge to live our lives as a dedicated offering before God. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how can you season it with more salt? By having more salt added in. By being a part of the local church and being around more salty people. I know that sounds bad. But being around people who are going to increase your saltiness is good. If we're to live as a dedicated offering to God, then we need others who are going to come alongside us and help us keep our flavor keep our saltiness, keep us on track. We need a church family. We need brothers and sisters who love us enough to give us the truth and try and protect us from everything else and and encourage us, challenge us, and study with us. Some may say, maybe those watching online, I don't really need other people. I've got the Holy Spirit, but don't forget it was the Holy Spirit who encouraged someone to write, let us hold, hold on to the confession of our Hope without wavering, since he who promises faithful, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. And he goes on, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see that day approaching. How many of you remember the show Mama's Family? I'm the only one. Okay, two of you. All right. Thelma Harper, the great prophetess that she was, that's a joke. He said, He said, uh, yeah, you don't need to go to church to go to heaven, but you don't need a parachute to jump out of an airplane either. Church, if this passage today, it tells us nothing else. It tells us that the Christian life is one that needs protecting. It needs conditioning. It needs encouraging. It is not an easy thing to live. But God's grace is good. God's mercy is faithful. When we are determined, when we follow after Christ, in spite of our trials, in spite of our fears, in spite of the fire that comes our way, you should also know that others see that struggle. Others see you not bending, not breaking. And even if they do see you breaking, it's okay. Because they'll see you on your knees worshiping. They see us represent Christ in the hardest of times. They see us, they hear of the testimony of our struggle, the testimony of our victories. 
and they'll want to worship with us because I'll tell you what, people love an underdog. I can say this as a Yankees fan. People hate the Yankees because they always win. They like the underdog. People naturally root for the underdog. And the greatest underdog is a Christian who has nothing to gain on earth, but who has given themselves to Christ, the one who overcame sin, death, and the grave on their behalf. Jim Elliott once said, He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Jim Elliott was eaten by cannibals in South America. He lived that. He believed that. Church, that's a Christian life. That's what we're called to. Not to be eaten by cannibals necessarily, but to live a life of sacrifice like that. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come back up on the platform. If you're here and you're struggling in your walk and you're saying, I know many of us are at a point where they're saying, you're saying, I, I feel like the water surrounds me and I don't see land. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. I would challenge you, grab a hand near you and ask that person to pray with you. It's okay to do that. If you're here, if you're watching online and you're saying maybe in a metaphorical sense, I could really use that cup of water. I could, I could use some, some extra nourishment today, some extra prayer. Don't be afraid to reach out. Grab the hand of the person near you or we're going to open up the front if you want to come forward to pray. We're going to sing another song, and then we'll dismiss in prayer. We have a potluck afterwards, I know. and We're going to, we're going to end the live feed. But if you're listening or you're, you're watching at home, you're not alone. There are those who love you and want to encourage you. I challenge you to reach out, keep pushing on. You don't do this by yourself. You represent Christ. You don't have to be alone while you do. around us, to our friends, our family, our co-workers. Father, I pray that when they see us, they see your son. I pray they see us, they see someone who loves Jesus, who wants to do all they can for the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that we advance your gospel. I pray that we, we represent Jesus when he's loving, but also if we have to, those times that, flip, that involve flipping of tables, God. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom to know when and where to do that. Father, I pray you go with us, be with us, keep us safe. I pray your, your hand be upon our time of fellowship that follows this. I pray you bless the food, the hands that prepared it, of course. But Lord, we pray most of all that, that it be a time of enjoyable time of Christians being Christians around other Christians. Lord, that you be glorified from it, that it be worship to you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.